Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's in quarantine, my GOP legislators? Hello, dear friends. I made the previous joke about Ted Cruz quarantining and then being exposed again and immediately re-self-quarantining. Back in an earlier distant age, when such things were a little bit more funny-seeming, we are not in a position where that's super funny right now, so I would like to replace the bit that Sophia and I did about that with this new bit, which is a joke. Uh, So there's this pirate, and he walks into a bar, and the pirates, the the bartender looks at the pirate, and he's got like a steering wheel in his pants, and the bartender's like, hey, what do you, what you got that steering wheel in your pants for? And the pirate responds, yar, tis driving me nuts. That is the joke. Please enjoy the rest of this episode. I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards, a podcast about terrible people. Here with me, Sophia Alexandria! Yeah! I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for Thank having you. me, Robert Thank and you. Sophie. Thank Hi. you. I I did a musical intro for you, just doing mouth sounds. I noticed it, good. and it was good, and Thank you. you didn't like malfunction like a broken robot like no. you did last time when you Thank tried you. to intro. So this is really a step up. I've uh, I've decided to turn a new leaf professionally because I think it's important to be professional. So in the spirit of professionalism, do you want to play with this switchblade a stranger sent me in the mail? Yes, please. Have you, you try? I I got a switchblade. So every time I come back to LA, I get new fan packages, and this one was just a switchblade. Um, so that's pretty fun. We've been carrying it around, playing with it. Didn't know how to close it for a while, so was just waving it around. Sophia's trying to figure out how to close it now. It's a good time. Yeah, I'm excited to figure this puzzle out. Yeah. Chris got it in like 30 seconds. Chris immediately, Chris, our editor, immediately figured out how to close it. Uh, the rest of us were, in, particularly me, shamefully couldn't figure it out. 
So I was just I was just waving an open knife around for a while. Uh, which I know there's I believe, like a pinching situation. I'm just like, where? We're, we're good with OSHA, right, Sophie? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sophie says everything I do is fine. Mm-hmm. So, Sophia, mm-hmm. have you heard about Narendra Modi? No. Oh, boy. Well, he's the prime minister of India. And you heard about how, like, a couple, couple three weeks ago, there was that um, pogrom in uh, uh, New Delhi where, like, mobs of angry uh, Hindu extremists were chasing Muslims through the street and killed dozens of them? Um, not as familiar as I should be. Oh, boy. Yeah, that happened. Um, and we're going to talk about everything that led up to that happening. Um, so this is going to be a fun one. It's fascism. Come, you know how sometimes... Countries are, like, functioning democracies for a long time, and then a fascist gets in charge, and you realize that, like, oh, man, everybody was still way more racist than I gave them credit for. Shit. You know how that happens in some countries? No. What do you mean? <laughs> like, how and where? I don't can't relate to that at all. <laughs> yes, today we're talking about something that has only happened in India and nowhere else. <laughs> and and not, it's currently not ongoing yes. anywhere Near or around us. I, I love talking about things that every single person listening to this podcast hasn't experienced in their own country. <laughs> That's my favorite thing to talk about on this podcast. Oh, man. Good times. So, yeah. How are you? How hey, are you um, just a quick question. How many dead babies in this episode? I just need to know how, how much to steal myself for this. There's like one paragraph where we talk about a couple. But other than that, it's mostly That's discussion it? of murdered adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty light on that. Okay, do you like me more or less now that you're only having me... Uh, now that you're not I, having me on only it, dead children episodes. You know what it is, Sophia? What? I feel like I feel like... You know, when you when you when you get into a new relationship with somebody, like mm-hmm. you stay with what's comfortable for a while, and so we stayed on the dead baby train for a little while because it made you feel safe. Could made me feel safe, but now I'm willing to experiment with fascist foreign political leaders. Oh, you want yeah. to invite a fascist into our relationship? Yes, yes, okay. I do. There's always a point in every relationship where mm. you invite a fascist strongman in. You freaky, yeah. let's do this. Yeah. That's why they keep winning, actually. Because you kink. just want to fucking bring him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't keep him out of your bedroom. You just like to dom. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that about you. <laughs> oh, boy. This is going to feel so much less comfortable after we get to all the murdered people. <laughs> I mean, that's why I'm really getting it in right now. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about Nazism in India. As you know, big fan. Big fan of Nazism in India. Huge. Just anywhere, really. Yeah. As a Jew, nothing warms my heart more. <laughs> so Nazism in India have a long, strange history that's really, really difficult to talk about. Um, as we discussed in our Savitri Devi episodes, uh, the OG Nazis were obsessed with India as the homeland of the ancient Aryans that they idolized. Uh, and the SS Ananerbe, which was like the SS archaeological division, actually sent expeditions into Tibet and northern India to seek out the origins of their mythical supermen. So, like, how heartwarming that they had enough time to like follow this beautiful they really thread. Did. They really did. While they were like murdering all across Europe, it's just so sweet that they were like, you mm-hmm. know what? Let's explore a little bit of some something mystical. Yeah, this was when they were sending this out was like kind of the slow murder period where they were like they hadn't because there weren't that many like Jewish people actually in Germany proper. So they they really hadn't ramped up the killing yet and they were mostly doing weird shit and murdering their political opponents. And Is then pre Kristallnacht? Yeah. No, but it's it's pre um invasion of poland and stuff so it's like okay. it's like pre the start of actual hostilities so they've they're, they're definitely killing a lot of people but like by nazi standards they mm-hmm, haven't really mm-hmm. got into 
what it's more like an amuse bouche. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a little bit of archaeology with our uh, our murder appetizers. Just like a like a slow ramp up. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm not gonna make an edging comment here. <laughs> um, so while the ideological underpinnings of Nazism did not get really any purchase in the Indian subcontinent during the 1930s and 1940s, many Indians saw Nazi Germany as a potential ally in their battle against British imperialism. So one of the tough things to understand, and this is also true to an ex- a different kind of extent with like Ukraine, is um, there was a number of folks in India who supported the Nazis during the period where the Nazis were in charge, not because they cared about Nazism, but because they hated the British Empire, which is like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, everybody hates the British Empire. Yeah, and if you're like a Hindu nationalist or an Indian nationalist and like a reasonable person like 1930, you know, you could look at the Nazis and be like, well, I'm sure they've done bad stuff, but like let's look at what the British Empire has been doing, right? Like, I think that's It's a long the, history of yeah. being terrible. A lot more reason to be concerned. Um, so that's part of the support here. And and I, that aspect of it, the, the part where it's like kind of understandable support of the Nazis, um, reached its height with the Indish Legion um, or the Indian Volunteer Legion of the Waffen SS. This was an all-Indian military force aimed uh, formed at the guidance of Indian nationalist leader Subhas Chandra Bose. The forces were initially formed out of Indian POWs captured fighting against the forces of the British Empire. So like they would beat a British army and they would capture a bunch of of Indian soldiers that the British had taken in. And then they would be like, you guys want to like invade India and free it from British domination? And these guys were like, yeah, of course. <laughs> that sounds good. You guys want to build a snowman? Yeah, it was a little bit like that. Um, so the idea was that like these Indian soldiers would act as pathfinders and like help lead the German army into India when it was time to invade the subcontinent. Uh, and Germany wound up collecting well over 10,000 Indian soldiers that way. So there were like 10,000 Indian, Hindu and Muslim Indian soldiers in the SS. That's wild. Yeah, most people don't know this story. It's so wild. <laughs> it's really weird. They were eventually stationed in France just in time for the Normandy landings. And they never wound up taking part in much meaningful combat. But a lot of them did get killed by the uh, the French resistance. Like, it's this really weird story. It's so nuts. <laughs> yeah. there Imagine are... how confused you'd be when, yeah. like, an SS officer came to take you away and he was Indian. And you'd be like... Well, they didn't do that, really. Like, they weren't doing normal SS stuff. Like, they even had in their... You don't get to take people away? No, they're not really persecuting anybody. Why even be in the SS? I don't think they knew what it was. I think they were like, you guys hate the English, and we hate us some English. Again, like... That's a horrible mistake. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a real comedy of errors. You could get a... (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's it's weird, because, like, there's, like, photos of um, Erwin Rommel like reviewing parades of these guys and you can see like fucking Rommel um like like pinning medals on the chest of guys with turbans and like it's just this it's it's a very strange chapter of history um but they did have like a clause in their contract that said they would not be used for offensive operations anywhere but India so like they did kind of have written into their contract we're not like fully on board with the Nazi thing so i wouldn't call i don't know like it's weird that's kind of cool do other yeah. Have other people have who have joined like armed things gotten a chance to be like, you know what, this but not this? I don't like all the way up to the killing, but not the killing. You don't get to do that, right? Yeah, this is the only time I've heard about something like this happening. Yeah, it's, it seems unusual. It's a weird case from the war. And like, imagine <laughs> if that's what soldiering really was. You sign up, but you get to say no things. That's anytime. actually that's actually how the German army works today. 
Really? They're, as far as I know, the only one where if you are a German soldier, you have a right written into like the law of the nation that says that if you have a moral issue with uh, a deployment or something, you get to say no. So I wonder can, why that's there. Yeah, I wonder why they have that rule. <laughs> um, so after the war, India gained her independence on the back of a fundamentally peaceful movement. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, one of the chief architects of independence, was assassinated, though, by a member of the RSS, a Hindu nationalist political party with ties to Savitri Devi, the birth mother of esoteric Hitlerism, who we talked about a few weeks ago. India and Pakistan split apart, due in large part to fears by Indian Muslims that they would be dominated by Hindus in any democratic system. This mass migration resulted in what some have termed a mutual genocide, killing well over a million people, possibly like as much as three million people. Holy fuck. It was a horrific, horrific, like the split of India and Pakistan was just unbelievably violent. And it's one of those things where like you'd be really hard pressed to like lock down like a side that was like mutual. I've, I've never heard again the term mutual genocide. I was genocide just going to say mutual before. genocide is an insane yeah. name and also the name of my death metal band. Yeah, it is a good name for a metal band. Yeah. And it's this is all a, a very complicated history, but there. So you can see there's like this huge tension between. So India is simultaneously has more Muslims than any other country on earth, but is also uh, the vast majority of people in it are Hindu. Um, and this has been a, a, a problem for a while in terms of like um, violent. Uh, uh, differences between the two groups in part because like at different points one group or another has like ruled the nation and the other people particularly like for a long time the the like there was like a muslim conquest of india and the mughals ruled and it was like so this is like there's a lot of history here that we're not going to get to cover in enough depth but the fact that like the partitioning of india and pakistan goes as violently as it does um uh, says something about the state of affairs at the time. And it's, it's worth noting that like a lot of that also goes on the British because there were ways to have handled this that were smarter and, and more uh, understanding and, and would have resulted in less death. But England was just like, ah, fuck it. We'll just, here, we'll, we drew a map. Like, this seems good to us. You guys figure out how to implement it. Um, but we already drew the map. Yeah, we already, we can't change it just because people are Come dying. On. Yeah, the map is already drawn. Yeah, and it's probably worth noting that it's unlikely any of this would be happening if the British hadn't ruled India for a couple of hundred years. But Anderson gets angry when I I talk shit about the British Empire. She's a big fan of that. She's dressed in a really smart, like, mm -hmm. British tweed right now. She likes Ooh. Royals. And she does not fuck around when she's dressed to the nines. Is Royals the show about the British royal family? Can I Is give her one? a treat? Is that the one everyone's watching? Anyway. So, um, in the decades since uh, the partitioning of India, uh, the nation of India lurched forward to take its place as the planet's largest democracy. Elections and crises came and went, and India took its place again as an independent power on the world stage. Uh, Americans grew increasingly obsessed with the subcontinent as a source of ancient wisdom and as a great vacation destination. And at the same time, <laughs> Indians grew... Well, Can I, I mean, tell you something? Nothing has changed. Look at any white girl's Instagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's pretty cool. I mean, one of the neat things about going to India, particularly to New Delhi, is how many uh, like young American, like nineteen and twenty year olds, you meet there having like massive existential crises. Because New Delhi is a hard fucking city to land in. Like it is, it is a shock. There's so many more people than you'd expect. It moves so fast. It is so polluted, um, and so 
like 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 people just have massive panic attacks and there's like this whole industry based on like you see some rich panicking kid who like didn't realize what it was really going to be like to be in a city like that and you like come up to him and be like you want to get out of of, of delhi right you want to visit like one of these vacation spots and he's like yeah yeah and they're like all of the trains are shut down there's no buses leaving the town but i got a bus that you can charter and then like they've paid three thousand dollars to rent a bus for a week it's oh my god what a sweet <laughs> fucking hustle it's it's pretty fun to watch <laughs> I'm learning so much. Yeah. So at the same time as all of this happened, uh, Indian or a number of people in India grew increasingly obsessed with the theories and iconography of Adolf Hitler and his Nazi movement. And the reason behind this was complex and confusing. It ranges widely from more or less harmless stuff. Like the term Hitler has become a common Bollywood insult for characters who act badly. Like... You know, you're wow. yeah, yeah, like 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 just sort you're of being like a total Hitler you're right being now. a total Hitler right now. Yeah. That's so awesome. We yeah. should do this. We Let's should do that this. one more. Um but it it, it it kind of hints at something, which is that like Hitler and the legacy of the Nazis isn't really seen kind of the same way over there as it is here because it's way more distant, right? Like the, all of that those politics are more distant to people there. So it kind of like you get some weird examples of um, like every couple of years there would be a story of just like some shop opening up in Delhi or some other city in India that's like got a huge swastika on the front or like a picture of Hitler. And it's like usually when you read articles interviewing the shop owner, he's like, well, I didn't really know anything about him. I just thought like the imagery was cool. <laughs> it's like it's very strange. Um, so uh, Crossword, an Indian bookseller, sold 25,000 copies of Mein Kampf in three years. Uh, Jayco, another Indian book merchant, sold 100,000 copies in seven years. Hitler's manifesto was translated into Gujarati, uh, Hindi, uh, Malayalam, Malayal, uh, Jesus, I'm so sorry to all of the people of Southeast um, Asia that I'm going to be butchering words from. Um, Bengali and Tamil, and it sold solidly across the subcontinent. So you have Wait this- Wait till they hear about Da Vinci Code, man. <sighs> yeah, and the Knights Templar. Uh, we don't want that going over there. Um, yeah, so you have this weird thing where like there's this mix of the, the history of Nazism being less immediate in India. And so like people, you know, like adopt the term Hitler as a general insult. and But also this weird phenomenon of like Hitler's actual words selling very well in chunks of India. And what makes this unsettling is that the book is not being sold there as a historic text. Instead, Mein Kampf has achieved popularity in India as a sort of self-help book, a guide to success for Hindu businessmen. Oh because, my God. Yeah, it's not great. What the fuck? Yeah. A guide to success? Yeah, he's like their Tim Ferriss. You know, not their Tim fair but to like a, ch- a, a subculture within like the 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 hindu business community he's like a tim ferris type figure like a great produ- productivity uh, uh guru um, or like set a timer for 30 minutes <laughs> and then when it goes off you kill all the jews <laughs> i found a cbs news article that interviewed uh tarun sinkhal uh, a management student at new delhi's institute of technology it was like without the final solution i would have never passed my marketing <laughs> class we need a final solution to getting these products off the shelves. I'll tell you Seriously. what. <laughs> uh, he read my, so this guy Tarun read Mein Kampf as an undergraduate and he found it inspiring. And he told CBS, quote, it serves as a reminder that nothing is unachievable. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it doesn't matter how many millions of people mm-hmm. you dream of killing from how many different kinds of groups you 
got this. You you want to kill three? You want to kill six? You want to kill eleven? You got this. After that you point, you go, girl. Yes, the Russians queen. might. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this does come back to my frequent refrain on this show that like people should not, as often as they are, be encouraged to follow their dreams. <laughs> yes. so some people's dreams are garbage. Yeah, yeah. some people's <laughs> dreams not good. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, he, he said it serves as a uh, reminder that nothing is unachievable, and he added that he added that he was able to separate uh, that message of of empowerment from the book's pervasive anti-Semitic ideology. <laughs> so you got to cut out all the Jew hatred, it's but then the, there's some good stuff. The old I read Playboy for the articles defense. Yeah, I read Hitler you know? for the management advice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about, Mein Kampf? Yeah, uh, I mean, sure, there's some Jew stuff in there, but mm. mostly what I thought. About about was efficiency. Yeah, mostly it taught me how to really set up an organization. Yeah, yeah. It, it taught me management skills, how mm-hmm. to talk to people before you kill them, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was very helpful. Very into, helpful. You know, in luring people to their deaths. It really helped. It's wild because, like, if you actually look into how the Third Reich was managed, Hitler, it was a sh- complete shit show, and Hitler was terrible at it. And the only reason they had as much military success as they did is decades of primarily Prussian military ingenuity. That, like, but it, it like, it, it, he wasn't good as a manager is the is the core of the point. But I guess people miss that. Um, so in 2010, Bollywood director Nulin Singh uh, announced his plan to produce a movie titled "Dear Friend Hitler." Um, which was, shall we say, a different Fuck take on Ole Adolf. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't need to register my script with the WGA anymore. Because oh, that's a clearly shame. Clearly someone's taken my idea. That's a bummer. Hitler, colon, not so bad. I, I do that have. That was also another version of, your, I mean, this that was a musical, but. I have an idea for a script that I yeah. Do you want me to just throw it out here? Yeah, Nobody yeah. steal this. It's called Reverse Hitler, the Hitler with the heart of gold, and it's uh. about a clone of Hitler that's his opposite, whose goal is to. And it can either be. I, I actually think this might work best as like a Netflix miniseries. His goal is to get six million Jewish couples pregnant. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about anti Hitler? Anti Hitler. We can workshop the title. Yeah. And you know what else I'd we really can workshop? I'd really like to be on board with this project. <laughs> Let's make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this to slip away, mm-hmm. okay? No, we can make some bank off of this. Dude, anti-Hitler? Hunters mm-hmm. is popular, and that shit is trash. It is. It's so bad. It's really terrible. It's so bad. It's like... It's what, horrible. It's like written by people who I think like had heard of Jewish people but aren't, and I know the guy involved is Jewish <laughs> and the guy starring in it is Jewish, but I don't understand it. Why are they calling the grandparents softa? That's a that's a Hebrew word. That would never so be the thing. Weird. It would be Yiddish. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like just have one fucking real Jew look it over. Just one. Just one. It was. It's so bad. I respect it. Al well, you know what? I so respect. horrible. What about the fucking accent on the grandma? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's good. It's good. This is a terrible show, but you know what's not terrible and also hunts Nazis. These goods and services. These pro- exactly, exactly. Wow. Every single one of them. Nailed it. I loved that. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. 
And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We're back. We're back, and we're talking about Nazism in India. So, in 2010, this Bollywood director, Nalan Singh, announces that he's going to make Dear Friend Hitler. And CBS News reports that he was, quote, genuinely shocked that this created controversy. (laughs) Genuinely shocked. The media expressed disdain. Jewish groups were horrified, and his lead actor, though a bit baffled by the reaction, quit. While such a response would seem, if anything, understated in much of the world, Singh had reason to believe his film would not generate even a ripple of scandal in India. Here, Hitler is not viewed as the personification of evil, but with an attitude of morally ambiguous fascination. He is seen as a management guru, akin to Machiavelli or Sun Tzu, by business students, and an object of wonder by people craving order amidst the chaos of India. Imagine if 50 Cent did his own version of Mein Kampf instead of uh, The Art of War. Yeah. That would be a bummer. I feel like Kanye, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> New Kanye. New Kanye. 
So uh, that last line there uh, about people craving order amid the chaos of India, that brings us to like the real problem. Because while many of the Indians who created weird like Hitler-themed restaurants and clothing stores did so because they thought the imagery was neat and they just didn't know that much about the Second World War, there were a number of people who knew precisely what Hitler stood for. And some of them took uh, deliberately took advantage of their countrymen's ignorance of the Third Reich to whitewash Hitler and mainstream fascist politics. I'm sorry, whitewash Hitler. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Is that even possible? Kinda. I found a really interesting article on Heretz, uh, a left-leaning Israeli news website, and it documents this. It was called uh, Hitler's Hindus, Nazi-loving nationalists on the rise. And it starts with the author's recollection of their time in a cycling expedition through India in July 2008. They found themselves in Nagpur, a city in the exact middle of India and one of the hotbeds of the Hindu nationalist movement. In Nagpur, they found a pool parlor named Hitler's Den, complete with a def- def- definitely Nazi swastika on the sign. Um, I mean, obviously, what are you going to take pictures? in front of yeah i mean hitler's den of course i we all need a hitler's den shot so Hitler's Den was not just the result of good-natured ignorance about European history. Uh, for you see, Nagpur happens to hold the headquarters of an organization called the Rashtriya Swam, oh boy, Swayamsevak Sang, or RSS. It's a far-right Hindu fascist political organization originally founded back in the 1920s. And this is the group that, like, the guy who shot Gandhi was a former member of the RSS. So they're Fuck. cool dudes. One of the co-founders uh, or ideological founders or whatever of the RSS is a fellow named V.D. Savarkar. Uh, and V.D. Savarkar had a brother who was a big fan of the Nazi priestess Savitri Devi and like wrote a foreword in one of her books. And V.D. Savarkar himself was a big fan of our old buddy Adolf. In 1940, he addressed a group of Hindu nationalists by saying, There is no reason to suppose that Hitler must be a human monster because he passes off as a Nazi. Nazism proved undeniably the savior of India. Passes off as a Nazi. Passes off. (laughs) Yeah. As a Hindu extremist, V.D. Savarkar's primary motivation was a desire to see India turned into a Hindustan. That's the term you'd hear at the time. A nation completely dominated by Hinduism uh, and Muslims in particular completely purged and excised from society. At that same gathering, he stated... If we Hindus in India grow stronger, in time these Muslim friends of the league type will have to play the part of the German Jews instead. Yeah, Yeah, not a nice guy. And V.D. Savarkar coined the term Hindutva for his new ideology. He argued that ancient Aryans who'd settled in India formed a Hindu nation. Hinduness stemmed from geographical unity, racial unity, and a common culture which pitted the Hindus of India against all others. And there was like a caste angle to it too. He was like a Brahmin, and I, I think in his view of it, and it's become sort of more egalitarian fascism in the modern era but like initially there was like a very strict like racial hierarchy within Hinduism too I think that's less of a factor now but I'm not an expert on it Um, another early RSS leader M.S. Golwalkar was nicknamed the Guru of Hate. He was another big Hitler fan. In his 1939 book, We Are Nationhood Defined, a seminal RSS text, he wrote this. Something amazing about being the Guru of Hate. It's Pretty like cool. It's like Eddie Pepitone's The Bitter Buddha, you know? <laughs> I mean, not suggesting he's a Nazi. He's a, a very funny non-Nazi comedian. Yeah, not a Nazi. Just repeating Probably. again, not a Nazi. Probably. So, he said this in his book. German race pride has now become the topic of the day. To keep up the purity of the race and its culture, Germany shocked the world by her purging the country of the Semitic races, the Jews. A good lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit by. <laughs> so, oh, it's so cool that neat. when my grandpa's, I mean, my grandma's family was all shot to death. It was like a really good lesson. For it was a really people. good lesson for 
And it it goes to show kind of th- this thing that I don't think is talked about enough, which is like fascism functions very similarly to a cancer. And World War II can be seen as a really aggressive dose of chemo, but we didn't fucking get it all. And that's why this is all happening all over the world right now is these little bitty like pockets of it. Um, but it's not possible to get it all. I Maybe it is. Maybe. How? I think there's an argument to be made about the nature of our society and that, and this will come into play later here, and that if you live in a system that is as completely dominated by by capitalism and, and moneyed interests as ours is, because that's always a factor in the rise of all these movements, is, is the business leaders in those countries, even the ones that don't really like the fascist party, prefer it to socialism. And that's a huge factor everywhere fascism seriously takes hold. It's just like these rich people being like, well, I guess I prefer these folks to giving up a big chunk of my fortune. And so there's an argument to be made that if you have a, a state with a strong social safety net already in place and with strict limits on how much power the wealthy can exercise, it seriously cramps the ability of these movements to get off the ground. Um, nobody's ever eradicated fascism from the human race, so we can't know what the solution is. But yeah. if, I'm, if I'm theorizing, that would be a suggestion I would make. <laughs> I'll take it under advisement. Yeah, yeah. The next time you're trying to eliminate fascism, maybe give that a shot, Sophia. I'm not all the way in, but I'll think about it. Well, it's all on you specifically, (laughs) so I hope you do. But yeah, mm -hmm. as you know, people have been waiting for me to eliminate fascism. Really solve this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all waiting. So another one of the founders of the RSS uh, was a guy named Hedgewar, uh, and he deliberately uh, patterned the RSS after the fascist parties he'd watched rise to power in Germany and Italy. Hedgewar dressed his stormtroopers in khaki uniforms patterned off Mussolini's fascists. He marched them through the street in an Indian equivalent to the goose step, and he gave them like a weird little salute that's like kind of like a modified Hitler salute that they still do to this day. Uh, Hedgewar- uh, modified in which way? Um, if you look up RSS like salute, so if they can see it, it, is it no, less? it's like a little bit less of the hand motion, um, just like less noticeable. What do you want me to look up? RSS salute. Are you get like some, a- yeah, yeah. It's like it's like uh, your arm kind of like over your with like your fist over your heart. You can sort of see the inspiration, but it kind of looks. If it's you like do a, this, it's like a. It's an almost Hitler. Yeah. It's a little bit of a of a subdued. Oh, do you have to keep your arm straight though? Yeah, I think you have to keep it straight. Okay, yeah, yeah no, that has a very Hitlery look. It's, okay, it's got a Hitlery it. look to it. Yeah. And Hedgewar's fundamental belief was that centuries of domination by the British Empire had emasculated the Indian man and they needed a violent Oof. fascist paramilitary force to restore their manly pride. So I noticed you picked up the knife, just sort of by reflex. I got real mad. (laughs) That's a good (laughs) reflex to fascism. Um, So the RSS was, from the beginning, profoundly anti-Muslim. They preached that India's Muslims were descended from Hindus who had been violently converted and thus were not authentically Indian. Nonviolence and plurality were all equally hateful to the men of the RSS, including one Natharam Vinayak Godsi, the assassin of Mahatma Gandhi. After Gandhi's murder, the party was banned, but not for long. The centrist powers of India never quite succeeded in wiping it out, and as a result, it hung out in the margins of political society for years, waiting for the right time to reemerge. 
Bit by bit, it grew to hold influence over ever greater swaths of Indian society. In 2004, the Gujarat State Board issued textbooks that described Adolf Hitler as a hero, with social uh, study textbook chapter titles like Hitler, the Supremo, and Internal Achievements of Nazism. One the sec- Supremo? The Supremo. What a bad breakfast sandwich, Hitler, yeah. the Supremo. Ugh. Yeah, that does sound like a terrible... There's like a lot of hair in it, just mustache hair. Yeah, it's mostly like really greasy pork and like boiled eggs. Yeah, greasy pork and boiled eggs is Ugh. the Supremo Hitler. Yeah, yeah, the mustaches. And for sure the bread is moldy. Yeah. Ugh. It's like, I mean, I prefer it to Subway, but not by much. (laughs) And it's less fascist than Subway, but not by much. Subway, if you sponsor our show, I'll take all this back and we will eat fresh. Seriously. So, yeah, uh, from that uh, social study textbook, there's a section called Ideology of Nazism. And in that chapter, it notes, quote, Hitler lent dignity and prestige to the German government. He adopted the <laughs> polity of opposition towards the Jewish people and advocated the supremacy of the German race. So you can, you can kind of see something happening here. Ugh. Yeah. Sympathizers in the state of Tamil Nadu succeeded in sliding pro-Nazi messages into a 10th grade social studies textbook in 2011, including chapters praising Hitler's inspiring leadership, achievements, and how the Nazis only ordered the persecution of the Jews in order to maintain a German race with Nordic elements. <laughs> Nordic elements. So that's good. In 2012, 10th grade students at a private school in Mumbai were asked to complete a sentence starting with the words, I admire. Nine of the 25 students in that class picked Hitler. A 2002 poll conducted by the Times of India found that 17% of respondents listed Hitler as the kind of leader India ought to have. So, given all that, it would be fair to say that India's issues with Nazism go just a skoosh behind simple ignorance of history. It would, in fact, be fair to say that a number of very motivated people have spent decades attempting to mainstream Nazi ideology and push the ideals of fascism on the people of the world's largest democracy. And it would furthermore be fair to say that those same very motivated people have seen terrifying success. No individual has seen more success with this than Narendra Modi, the current prime minister of India and the man who was governor of Gujarat in 2004 when the province added that pro-Hitler curriculum to its textbooks. So... We're going to talk about Modi now. Now, now we're into the. the I'm ready. The I'm stroking my knife. Good. Th- that's the right response. Oh, <laughs> look! He let me call it my knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's up? It's now my knife. I'm kindly stroking my knife. It's the coolest thing I've heard all day. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's get a couple of knives, more knives in here, Sophie. Narendra Modi was born in Vanagar, a small town in North Gujarat's. Uh, Mensana District on September 17th, 1950. He was the the third of six children, and he was not born into wealth or privilege. His family was of the Ganchi caste, which put them about as low on the cultural totem pole as one could go without literally being an outcast. Traditionally, members of this caste pressed vegetable oil for a living, but Narendra's father supported his family by running a small chai shop at a local railway station. The Modi family were incredibly poor, and lived together in a 40 by 12 foot single story house. When Narendra was old enough, he worked at his father's tea shop to help support the family. He would get up early to work alongside his dad and then cross the train tracks to head to school later in the morning. The modern political propaganda around Modi often emphasizes the fact that he is unmarried and chaste, essentially portraying him as something of a monk dedicated purely to his work on behalf of India, a man who sacrificed even love for the love of his country. As we know, being chaste doesn't always work out. Nope. Actually, it can be a real problem. Maybe some people should just fuck. Yeah. (laughs) People should just fuck, maybe. Yeah. 
Um, but this whole like presenting himself as like a chaste monk, uh, it, it does kind of it keeps with a broad trend in propaganda around Modi. For example, this is how his website narendramodi.in describes his childhood. As a child, Narendra Modi balanced his studies, non-academic life, and his contribution to the family tea stall. His schoolmates recall Narendra as a diligent student with a penchant for debating and reading. He would spend hours and hours reading in the school library. Among the sports, he was very fond of swimming. Narendra Modi had a wide range of friends from all the communities. As a child, he often celebrated both Hindu and Muslim festivals, considering the large number of Muslim friends he had in the neighborhood. Yet his thoughts and his dreams went way beyond a conventional life that began in the classroom and ended in the environs of an office. He wanted to go out there and make a difference to society, to wipe tears and suffering among people. At a young age, he developed an inclination towards renunciation and asceticism. He gave up eating salt, chilies, oil, and jaggery. So that's kind of how he's portrayed in his official propaganda, right? So they also he had tons of Hindu friend, or Muslim friends. He's not racist. And he, so, dude, if your God doesn't want you to eat chilies abandon your god it's not that because like obviously like chilies are like a traditional hindu food it, it's this idea that like um that they are better than people because you don't need chilies that because you sacrifice comforts of the flesh you're a holy man like that's kind of what make and that's not just hinduism that's like a huge in christianity and islam like this no, idea I know, that but i'm yeah. saying like if you're not fucking at least have chilies if you're not you fucking, got, at least have chilies. If you don't have hot sauce, mm -hmm. what do you even have? That's a t-shirt. You're not fucking. You have some chilies. Yeah, you gotta. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Chilies or fucking, ideally both, to yes. avoid fascism. Yeah. Uh, so it was, however, revealed during his first campaign for prime minister that Narendra was legally married and had been virtually his entire life. Uh, he was like uh, married at, uh, as a child. Uh, the couple actually moved in together at the age of 17, but they only cohabited for three months. Then Narendra abandoned his wife to wander around the Himalayan mountains on a pilgrimage, and he never returned. Suck it, so wife. This, oh, till death do us part. Just kidding. No, until I wander away forever. It's It's a little bit. Weirder than that, because I, I can't put this on Narendra because he didn't get to like choose to marry his wife. It was like um, his family, like his family was very traditional, um, and they thought that like they should um, do kind of the traditional thing for people in their culture, which was like you marry off the kid pretty young, like it was an arranged marriage sort of thing. And so like this partner was picked for him when he was three or four, and they were just like engaged to be married. And then at 17, they moved in together. And he kind of immediately knew like, I don't want this life. And so he left. And I can't really put, I mean, I can put the whole becoming like a fascist on him, but deciding that you don't want to marry this person your parents hooked you up with when you were like four, that, I, that can't be on him. How did his wife feel though? I don't she know. She fucking but like, wander away. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I, I can't blame him for like not wanting to be married when he didn't choose to get married. I'm sure she didn't want it either, but she was just trying to play along for a second. I don't know what happened to her. I don't know that anybody does. Okay, uh, good. We should research that. Yeah, that would for be next time to know. Yeah. So anyway, it, it, what I'm getting out is that like th this guy's backstory is a little bit complicated, and we don't have like a really clear idea of how he spent his youth or his childhood. We have a lot of propaganda and a few bits of like hard facts that are sprinkled in here and there. Um, yeah, so it's it's weird. Um, it, or not weird. It's just, it's not what we're used to. And it's hard to like, like a lot of this is hard to kind of square with the way things are in the US. Like here in the US, like politicians are supposed to be like family men. And like, to the point where like, our current president literally bragged about his dick size during a major political debate. And it's kind of hard as an American to get your he head around somebody bragging that like, I don't fuck. I have no partner. And like, I don't bone at all. 
But th- no, I get that it makes yeah. you holier than other people. Exactly. Yeah. And, he, and, and it kind of positions like him as a guru. You need to come. Yeah. I don't. I don't. For me, coming is politics. <laughs> and that's a good thing. <laughs> it's just different. Um, so, Narendra's childhood coincided with an interesting time in Indian politics. The Congress Party, the party of Gandhi, basically held power for the first 50 years of his life. They stood for, a sec- uh, for secular democratic values and were directly opposed to the RSS. As you might expect from a violent fascist movement, the RSS was, initial- RSS was initially a high-caste endeavor uh, organized by wealthy men. But in order to expand their membership base after the partition of India, the RSS quickly found itself recruiting new members of lower castes. And one of those recruits was a young boy named Narendra Modi. And it's hard to say when he first got involved with the RSS. I've heard some sources that claim he was eight or nine years old when they when they went with him. His that's affi- early as hell. That's real fucking early. Yeah. His official biographies don't agree with this. And they state that he was like after he went on pilgrimage to the Himalayas that he, he came back and he joined the RSS. We don't know. Um, the official biographies talk about I don't know, you know, stuff like when, when he was nine years old, there was flooding in a river and he built a food stall to donate the proceeds to relief work. Um, and that during a war with Pakistan in his youth, he engaged in acts of charity, serving tea to soldiers passing through the railway station. That's what they focus on in the official biography, that he's like this very patriotic kid who dedicates a lot of his time and effort to, to helping his fellow Hindus. Um, and it's entirely possible that if he did any of this stuff, it was actually at the behest of the RSS and he was doing it as like a child activist. I really don't know. It's kind of impossible to tell. Whatever the precise truth, we know that at age 17, Narendra abandoned his wife and left on a pilgrimage of spiritual enlightenment. When he came back, he set up a tea cart at a bus stand to make ends meet and began working for the RSS in, a, in an official capacity as a pracharik, uh, which was essentially a street propagandist. So Did he pr- holler at his wife when he got back? I don't think so. I, I don't think they saw each other <laughs> That's again. That's like, so I, rude, dude. <laughs> at least yeah. come by and say, like, hey, it's going to be weird. I'm selling tea in town. I'm back, you know. I'm back. Sorry, I'm kind of a dick, but probably you don't want to be with me anyway, so this is for the best, but I'm working for the Nazis. Yeah. If you see me in town slinging tea to the Nazis, don't don't feel weird about it. Don't make it weird. I have to say I've never fucked. So (laughs) this is critical for me. We never fucked, so they may not have he he might be completely honest about the whole ch- chasteness thing. Like, well, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to tell because it's hard to get like a real hint of what the man is. But he might actually be like a no nut sort of dude, like like really committed to that proud boy don't come sort of sort of thing. <laughs> Fascists hate coming. I know, <laughs> it's, so it's weird. Wild. So. Um, yeah, he, he starts work as a pracharak, which is basically like a street propagandist. Like he's giving speeches and stuff to try to like rile people up and get them involved in this nationalist movement and really teaches them how to like stir up a crowd and work one. Um, and pracharaks like Modi were expected to remain chaste, living like monks and dedicating their every waking hour to the party. So when Modi was not delivering speeches and spreading the RSS gospel of intolerance against non-Hindus, he cleaned out the living quarters of senior RSS officials. In interviews today, Modi claims that finding the RSS basically saved his life. Quote, I got the inspiration to live for the nation from the RSS. I learned to live for others and not for myself. I owe it all to the RSS. 
So fascist parties like the RSS de facto idolize the military, and leaders in such organizations either have to have a military background of their own, uh, or like as we saw with people like Hitler and Mussolini, or they need to come up with a very good excuse as to why they did not serve that still reinforces their bona fides as like a uh, a lover of the military. I was busy not fucking. I was busy too busy not jerking fucking. off to the military. You gotta May fuck I in the military. <laughs> Um, we kind of see this with Trump's bone spurs and in his bizarre insistence that the time he spent in the military school was essentially the same as being in the military. Like you've got to find a way to like kind of connect yourself to the military if you're going to be this sort of authoritarian strongman. And Modi never served, but his biography really tries to thread that needle. And I'm going to quote from it right now. As a child, Narendra Modi had one dream, to serve in the Indian Army. For many youngsters of his time, the army was seen as the ultimate means of serving Mother India. As luck would have it, his family was dead opposed to the idea. Narendra Modi was very keen to study in Sinek School located in nearby Jamnagar, but when the time came to pay the fees, there was no money at home. Surely, Narendra was disappointed, but fate had different plans for this young boy who was disappointed on not being able to wear the uniform of a Jawan, a soldier. Over the years, he embarked on a unique path that took him across India and pursuit of the larger mission to serve humanity. So he wanted to be a soldier, but like they couldn't make the funding work out and stuff. And thankfully, he found another way to serve that's just like being a soldier, but doesn't risk him getting shot in a border war with Pakistan. So that's cool. So just like that, though. Just like that. It's the same. It's the same, only he doesn't die anonymously in a trench huh. being ordered to charge a machine gun That's nest. That's cool. That is very... But it is the same. It is the same. Exactly the so. same. But very fortunate for him. So, in 1975, when Modi was 25 years old, India went through a period of economic collapse and the attendant civil unrest that comes with it. The RSS saw this as an opportunity to recruit and to stir up dissent against the ruling Congress party. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi responded to all this by suspending parliament and instituting emergency rule, a widely unpopular and illegal move that was rightly condemned by many. During her time as de facto dictator, Indira Gandhi had RSS leaders arrested and persecuted, and the organization itself was banned. Modi went into high at this time, dressing as a Sikh in a turban and what appears to be a fake beard. I've got a picture of him in disguise, and I'm almost certain that that's a costume piece he's wearing. Let me see the beard. Look at that. It's the little line on there that makes it look that's like it's a fake beard. so weird. Or he's just like got like a thick version of a chin strap going. Yeah, I can't really say for certain if it is a fake beard or not, but it's, it's the only question beard. that consumes me. It's a me. wild choice either it's way. Yeah. It, it look, you can I think the, the mustache like, is real. You can almost see the, the mustache is real, but you can yeah. almost see the tape. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird look. Sunglasses help. Yeah, they do help. I mean, it's not do a bad disguise. he just couldn't grow a beard or? He has one now, I think. So like, And yeah, what the fuck, dude? I mean, he was younger then. Some men, it takes a while before it comes out. Right. Yeah. I'll accept that. So Indira Gandhi's period of emergency rule eventually ended and the RSS was unbanned. And rather than being harmed by their period of persecution, Gandhi's targeting of the group legitimized them in the eyes of many Indians who had not identified with the organization previously. The RSS began to grow and the loyal Narendra uh, Modi moved up the ranks quickly. In 1987, he joined the... Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP. And the BJP is the electorally political... <laughs> I'm also a member of the BJP. What's up, dude? Ooh, that I is... so feel like BJs, sorry. Yeah, but it's the... In this case, the BJP is the electorally political wing of the RSS. So <laughs> you it's... don't gotta tell me about the BJP, Robert! <sighs> Robert's uncomfortable, it's great. You can all join blushed at the BJP. BJP. That is so cute. Oh, Lord in heaven. Um, Robert, you're adorable. You know what else is adorable? 
and pro blowjob. That's that's exactly right. All of these companies will blow you in the capitalistic sense by sending you products in exchange for currency. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. We're back. So, uh, Modi has just joined the the BJP, um, which is the political wing of the RSS. And he started at the bottom of the party, but his skill as an organizer ensured that he rose rapidly. By the 1980s, he had become a senior figure in the BJP's Gujarati chapter. At the time, the BJP was still definitely fringe. It had only two seats in parliament. The party leadership looked out at the political situation in India and saw that they needed a cause to crystallize the divisions between Hindu and Muslim in the country. And they found this cause in the city of Ayodhya. That holy city had a mosque called the Babri Masjid, Masjid, sorry, the Babri Masjid, which had been built by the Muslim Mughal Emperor Babur in 1528. For a variety of confusing reasons, a number of local Hindus had grown convinced over the years that this mosque was built over the site of an old Hindu temple. And some of these people began to claim that Ram, an avatar of Vishnu, had been born on the spot. And I'm going to quote now from a New Yorker article laying out what happened next. 
In September 1990, a senior BJP member named L.K. Advani began calling for the Babri Masjid to be destroyed and for a Hindu temple to take its place. To build support for the idea, he undertook a two-month pilgrimage called the Ram Rath Yatra across the Indian heartland. Traveling aboard a Nissan Jeep refitted to look like a chariot, he sometimes gave several speeches a day, inflaming crowds about what he saw as the government's favoritism towards Muslims. Sectarian riots followed in his wake, leaving hundreds dead. Advani was arrested before he reached Ayodhya, but other BJP members carried on, gathering supporters and donations along the way. On December 6, 1992, a crowd led by RSS partisans swarmed the Babri Masjid and, using axes and hammers, began tearing the building down. By nightfall, it had been completely razed. So they destroyed this mosque. Wow. So, and uh, Narendra Modi was still pretty low on the totem pole at this point, but his skill as an organizer earned him a place uh, organizing the Rath Yatra, that like chariot march across the country. It was his job to organize the Gujarat section of the chariot march. And the Ram Yatha sparked a series of horrifically bloody Hindu-Muslim riots all across the subcontinent. The violence took weeks to die down, and it was particularly bad in Mumbai, one of India's largest cities. Muslims were forced, either by mobs or by basic self-preservation, to move out of neighborhoods their families had occupied for generations. Many moved into what were effectively ghettos. The riots and dislocation caused by the Ram Rath Yatra's aftershocks contributed to the growing violent polarization of Indian society. One survivor the New Yorker interviewed reported feeling as if Mumbai had been transformed by all this. That is the first time I ever really thought about my identity. Our entire neighborhood, our friends, were going to kill us. And all this was fucking bank for the RSS. By 1996, nine years after Modi joined, the BJP had grown to become the single largest party in parliament. As it ever does, the rioting and racial hatred sparked by this fascist organization convinced more people to join it. As they grew to consume the Indian political system, a few forward-thinking academics began to study the party and its members. One of these was Ashish Nandi, and I'm going to quote again from The New Yorker here. A trained psychologist, he wanted to study the mentality of the rising Hindu nationalists. One of those he met was Narendra Modi, who was then a little-known BJP functionary. Nandi interviewed Modi for several hours and came away shaken. His subject, Nandi told me, exhibited all the traits of an authoritarian personality, puritanical rigidity, a constricted emotional life, fear of his own passions, and an enormous ego that protected a gnawing insecurity. During an interview, Modi elaborated a fantastical theory of how India was the target of a global conspiracy, in which every Muslim in the country was likely complete. Modi was a fascist in every sense, Nandi said. I don't mean this as a term of abuse. It's a diagnostic category. Cool and good. Everybody the only on diagnostics that I'm sorry. It's <laughs> just, just gonna come back to the BJP. Yeah, it's really it's, no way. <laughs> sometimes all you can do is laugh about blowjobs when you're talking about fascism. Yep. Because they hate blowjobs. It's a diagnostic category. That's what you said. Yeah, that's what that's what this psychologist. Like I'm said. not just being like you're a fascist. I, I'm being like, like fascism I'm being like, is a mental disorder, and I am diagnosing you with it. Yeah, hmm. yeah, interesting. Hmm. So. In September 2001, a month in which nothing else of historical import occurred, Narendra Modi was appointed to be the chief minister of the government of Gujarat, which the RSS and BJP had begun to dominate in a series of elections. Modi's rise to power was not due to his own electoral success, though. Um, it was due to basically his ability to politic internally, uh, and he basically undermined oh, another rival of his in the BJP, a guy named... Keshubhai Patel. I am so sorry about the names here. BJP, um, yeah, you know me. Yes, yes, yes. 
so yeah, uh, I found a quote from a guy named Vinod Mehta, which who's the former uh, editor of an Indian news magazine called Outlook, who remembers Modi turning up at their office in the year 2000 with a bunch of documents incriminating this rival of his, Patel, in a scandal. Quote, I immediately felt this man was bad news. There was something sinister about him and the way he spoke, and I felt deeply uncomfortable in his presence. He complained about Patel and talked about corruption. He came back a couple times, but I didn't run the story. Before I knew what had happened, he was back in Gujarat as the chief minister in Keshubai's place. So Narendra, like, basically fucks with this other guy. He sees his arrival, succeeds in kind of maneuvering him out of power, and he winds up as the man in charge on of Gujarat on February 27th, 2002, when a passenger train stops in the city of Godra after departing from Ayodhya. Many of the people on board the train were Hindu pilgrims who had been visiting the destroyed Babri Masjid Mosque in order to advocate the building of a Hindu temple over its remains. Most of them were members of the RSS. Somehow, Muslim residents of Godra realized that this train was filled with RSS activists, and they began to shout and jeer at them, and the Hindu partisans inside began to shout back. The train stalled as it began to depart, and this provided time for the confrontation to escalate. No one knows exactly what happened next, but someone threw something on fire into one of the cars, possibly like a Muslim shop owner like tossed a stove in there. It's really not known for certain, but one of the people in the crowd outside tossed something on fire into the... Um, into the train. And I, I've i been on a lot of Indian trains. They, they're incredibly crowded and a lot of people wearing like long flowing cotton garments and also carrying like piles of like clothes and stuff with them, like what they own and whatnot. And it's incredibly flammable in there. And this catches, like members of the group inside catch and the fire spreads. And it's just this, this horrific fire. And really like before anyone knows what's happening, 58 people had either burned to death or suffocated on board the train. Holy shit. Yeah. <coughs> and blame quickly settles on Muslims in general for this horrible tragedy. So members of the VHP, the religious wing of the RSS, uh, the group that most of the people in the train had been a part of, uh, petitioned Narendra Modi for the right to parade the burn corpses of their members through the streets of Ahmedabad, the largest city in Gujarat. The home, what? Yeah, they're like, we want to we want to really like make the most of this tragedy. So we want to like carry the dead bodies of uh, our members who got burnt to death and march them through the city to try to like spark a fucking riot. Like that's the goal here. Excuse me, I got to say that, you know, I was like, oh, I'm with them. I'm with them. They're grieving. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. So, so I feel like they, that really went... In the bad direction. Yeah. Um, And the Home Secretary of Gujarat warns Modi that allowing them to do this will spark another violent riot, telling him things will go out of hand. But out of hand is exactly where Modi wanted things to go. And sure enough, he allows them to march the corpses of their dead members through the street. And this provokes mobs of furious Hindus to take to the streets all throughout the cities of Gujarat, shouting, take revenge and slaughter the Muslims. Rioters cut open the stomachs of pregnant Muslim women and murdered babies. Hundreds of women were gang raped. Yeah, this is where we get to that. This is where you fucking... This is that paragraph. All right. Yeah. Okay. Touche, you son of a bitch. There's mass gang rapes. At least one Muslim boy is forced to drink kerosene and swallow a lit match. It's it's bad. It's a bad set of riots. Can you swallow a lit match? I'm no. I'm not. I know that's not the part I should focus on. Yeah, it's not. I don't think well. Jeez. Yeah. Um, and also a member of the Congress party, Hassan Jaffrey, uh, was caught by a crowd and publicly dismembered. So, like, these are really bad riots. Holy fuck. By the time it's all over, somewhere around two to 3,000 people are dead, and the vast majority of them are Muslims. And it, we'll, we'll never get an exact death toll. Um, reports began to filter out in the immediate wake that this violence had not been purely spontaneous, just an uncontrollable expression of rage. And I'm going to quote from The New Yorker again. 
They appeared to have been largely planned and directed by the RSS. Teams of men armed with clubs, guns, and swords fanned out across the state's Muslim enclaves, often carrying voter rolls and other official documents that led them to Muslim homes and shops. So they get, like, government information on where Muslims are living in town to carry out this stuff. Sounds very crystal nocty. Yeah, um, for sure. Modi, the man in charge of the Gujarati government, was nowhere to be found. But his influence was felt everywhere as he ordered Indian Army soldiers to post up in their barracks rather than intervene to stop the violence. Police also received orders to stand down, and in many areas, they just took part in the killing. One of the very few officers who did not go along with this was Rahul Sharma, the top cop in the heavily Muslim district of Bhavnagar. He later testified that he received no word at all from his superiors on how to contain the riots, which lasted more than three months. Sharma took matters into his oh my own hands. Riots lasted for yeah. more than three months. Yeah, three months of, of constant street violence. Holy shit. Yeah, it's hardcore. Um, it's a bad time. Um, and Sharma is one of like the few heroes of this time. So he like is being told nothing at all uh, from his superiors about like what to do about these murder mobs. Um, and it kind of comes to a head when this huge organized crowd of RSS supporters with weapons start like posting up outside a school filled with 400 Muslim children. Um, and oh, he eventually no. orders his cops to like fire into the crowd, which is really maybe the only time I can think of where I'm like, yeah, it's good that the police shot at that crowd. <laughs> Holy shit. But he successfully saves all these kids. He's a good guy. He did the right thing. Um, most police did not. Uh, the vast majority of Gujarati police let the pogroms continue unabated. As a general rule, this too conforms to the standard behavior of law enforcement during acts of ethnic cleansing all around the world. Uh, the ones who do not actively participate very often sit back and watch. So we can assume anywhere there is ethnic cleansing occurring, the police will be a part of it actively rather than protecting the victims. That's just true what a cool on multiple continents. Silver content lining? Mm -hmm. What's the opposite of a silver lining? Like a shit streak? Yeah, it's like a shit streak. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, like a shit streak covering one of those like thin blue lines. Yeah. Um, so Sharma was shuffled out of his job and criticized by India's home minister, a BJP functionary named Advani, for allowing too many Hindus to die in his district. So like one of the few cops who like does what a, you would hope a police officer do and protects the public gets like f basically fired for the fact that more, too many Hindus died because like some of his cops had to like shoot at Hindus to like stop them from massacring all these school children. <laughs> So, in the end, 2,000 people or more were killed in three months of horrific violence. More than 150,000 people, mostly Muslims, were forced out of their homes. As with the earlier rioting in September 1990, the Gujarati riots left a vastly more polarized state in their wake. Muslims were forced out of neighborhoods they'd long inhabited and dumped into slums for their own safety. One of these formed in the vast garbage dump of the city of Ahmedabad. Citizens Village, as it came to be known, hosted tens of thousands of Muslim refugees. What little aid it received was supplied by volunteers. Narendra Modi's government refused to help. When he was asked, asked why he had abandoned these people, who were also citizens of Gujarat, Modi replied, relief camps are actually child-making factories. Those who keep on multiplying the population should be taught a lesson. Wow. He's a cool guy. Cool. Not coming, dude. The Gujarat riots were met with a tepid response by the Indian government. Only a few dozen rioters were ever convicted of anything, and only one elected B official in the BJP, Maya Ben Kodnani, was ever convicted of murder and conspiracy. She was cleared of all charges when Modi became the prime minister, so that's nice. Pretty but convenient. Pretty convenient. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, though. 
The international community was outraged by what happened in Gujarat, and the RSS and Narendra Modi in particular became global pariahs. Modi was banned from travel to the United States or the United Kingdom. His reputation suffered enough that his fellow BJP members in India temporarily disavowed him. In 2004, the BJP Prime Minister, Atal Vajpayee, was voted out of office, and he blamed Narendra Modi for his loss. So for a while, it seemed like the Gujarat riots, as horrible as they were, had sounded a death knell to Modi's career and to the RSS. But of course, those riots would prove to be only the beginning. And on Thursday's episode, we're going to talk about what came next. But you know what it's time to talk about now? I don't know, the amazing goods and services? No, the amazing plugs that you have to plug. (gasps) What? Yeah, we're in the P-Zone! Me and the other members of the BJP. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, can be found on Twitter and Instagram at the Sophia S O F I Y A, and you can hear me on my two podcasts. One is on iHeart with Miles Gray from Daily Zeitgeist called 420 Day Fiance, and the other one is Private Parts Unknown with Courtney Kosak, where Yay. we travel all around the world and uh, talk to people about love and sex and sexuality. Yay. Yeah. Love Courtney. Courtney's the best. Love Courtney. Hate the growing specter of international fascism. Um, s- listen to Sophia's podcast. That's podcasts. weirdly on her mm-hmm. website. Yeah. As a quote from you. It is. It Great. is. That's my only book jacket quote. Um, so listen to those podcasts. Maybe pick up a couple of knives, a couple of other weapons. Uh, just, you know, get ready for your own local ethnic cleansing mobs. Um, boy, howdy. Sophie, how do we end an episode? Uh, you can find Robert on Twitter at I Write Okay. You can find us on the Twinstagram at, at Bastards Pod. You can find our sources uh, on, underneath the episode notes if you just scroll down. Um, and you can listen to Robert on Worst Year Ever. And we have another project coming out very soon. Look for that. Yeah, The Women's War, March 25th. Episode 1, March 25th. Trailer, March 18th. Look out for it. So, boy, Sophie, the way you handled that was so much more responsible than just telling the audience to arm themselves to fight against mobs That's of violent fascists. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank All you right, for that. All right, the episode is now over. Excellent. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.